0: Reflections on W.H. Auden's New Year Letter by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part two. Okay, I'll start with, we're doing part two of Auden's New Year Letter, and I will start with the first um, few lines and then stop and talk about them a little bit. Tonight, a scrambling decade ends, and strangers, enemies, and friends stand once more puzzled underneath the signpost on the barren heath where the rough mountain track divides, to silent valleys on all sides, endeavoring to decipher what is written on it but cannot, nor guess in what direction lies the overhanging precipice. All standing, strangers, enemies, and friends, standing, he says, once more, puzzled underneath the signpost on the barren heath. Once more is an interesting reference. Uh, by the way, I may read some things into this poem. I don't even, I, I only feel mildly uh, self-conscious about doing so. The poem now uh, belongs to us all. Uh, what Auden had in mind, uh, we know from some of his notes, but we don't know uh, specifically. Uh, And what he had in mind may not be the final uh, arbiter of the poem anyway. So I would like to suggest, for our purposes, that what the poem has in mind, uh, regardless of what the poet may have had in mind, uh, is that there is a signpost that we return to in the quandary. Uh, We stand once more, strangers, enemies, and friends, stand once more puzzled underneath the signpost. I would like to suggest that, well, I should say, for me, the signpost is the cross. The image that has stood for Christians for 2,000 years for the the, the imponderable. Uh, the paradox. And so, we stand before this signpost uh, unable to decipher it. It's at this moment, ceases to be to offer us a sense of direction. In that situation, one hears, he says, there are two sounds one hears. Through the pitch darkness can be heard occasionally a muttered word. Now, that's one of the sounds a muttered word. I guess what I'm offering is not really a, uh, a an interpretation uh, as much as it is a a personal um, uh, reflection on what this poem did to me as I read it. Occasionally one hears a muttered word in that uh, pitch darkness. And I, uh, I think perhaps the muttered word that Auden had heard was something like Elliot's Wasteland. Something that was... Uh, that was somewhat ineffable, somewhat inarticulate, somewhat perfectly articulate, uh, some hint of the nature of the situation, uh, but also muffled, uh, not quite clear. Uh, it took, uh, it, it has taken us uh, already these 50 years or more to uh, assimilate the wasteland, and I don't think it will be assimilated, really assimilated, for a lot longer than that. Uh, so it's uh, the wasteland and other things, um, Joyce's Ulysses, etc., uh, etc. Et muttered word that tells us something about the dilemma we, we face. And then there's an, the other sound. And that's th- the muttered word, I think, arises from those who have begun to seriously grapple with uh, the darkness. This is, this is comparable to Dante's Being Lost in the Dark Wood, only Auden says we're lost on a mountain, in a barren mountain track. The other sound is an intense in the mountain frost, the heavy breathing of the lost. Now, I want to uh, return to that phrase today uh, several times, the heavy breathing of the lost. I was reminded of the Blake passage uh, reading about this rough mountain track where this confusion is taking place. I was reminded of the Blake passage where he says, great things are done when men and mountains meet. This is not done by jostling in the street. Uh, And I think he hits on there the the tendency, which um, uh, many have touched on, uh, Camus touched on it in his essay, The Rebel, the tendency uh, to flee from the deeper, larger spiritual question into the sociodrama and uh, and to eclipse the larger spiritual question with all of the uh all of the melodrama that uh that uh, of, of which the social life can consist so blake says great things are done when men and mountains meet when we when we encounter this dantean dark wood or that moment in our own personal lives when uh things are not uh, the former sense of things is not holding together for us or a moment in cultural life when uh, the old adaptations have have uh, spent themselves. Uh, there is a tendency to flee from that encounter with the mountain of confusion uh, into the uh, into the agitations of the social melodrama, the jostling in the street. And for me, Auden's best phrase for that is the heavy breathing of the lost. There are only two sounds on this mountain: the muttered word of those who have begun the process of trying to articulate the nature of the dilemma and the heavy breathing of the lost. And then he goes on to say, Far down below them, whence they came, still flickers feebly a red flame, a tiny glow in the great void where an existence was destroyed. So back where we all came from, there still is this flickering red flame. Now, there are a number of echoes of this in other pieces of literature. In one of Thomas Merton's poems, he says, there is one red coal left burning beneath the ashes of the great vision. And we're reminded of that passage in 1 Samuel, where Samuel, the young boy who is to be the new prophet, uh, is uh, is living in the temple with uh, Eli and his family, Eli the, the the chief priest of the temple, and the cult is completely uh, overgrown with its own uh, uh, cultic apparatus, and the spirit has been quenched. And uh, the text says that the that the uh, the light in the temple, the, the the sanctuary light in the temple, had not yet gone out. See, there's this little flicker of hope. Auden relies quite heavily on Goethe's Faust for part two of this poem, and so I think it's uh, uh, not unlikely that he might have gotten a hint of this uh, red flame from a passage early in part one of Faust. Uh, here's how it goes. Faust and Mephistopheles are walking down the street, and next to them is the cathedral. And Faust looks up into the into the sacristy of the cathedral and sees the chancel lamp, the little sacristy lamp, flickering. And he says this, How from the window of that sacristy the light of the eternal lamp is glimmering, and weak and weaker sideward shimmering as night engulfs it like the sea. In other words, there's a little draft coming in the window, and the and the sanctuary lamp is burning, but it's flickering off to the side, being blown off to the side as though that cold draft might quench it at any moment. It's that delicate. And the, and the atmosphere uh, outside the church is that uh, hostile to it. It could go out. I'll read the Fa- Faust passage and then the two lines that follow. Faust says, How from the window of that sacristy the light of the eternal lamp is glimmering and weak and weaker, sideward shimmering as night engulfs it like the sea. My heart feels like this nightly street. And Mephistopheles says, And I feel like a cat in heat. Heavy breathing. You want a substitute for it? You want a substitute for that little lamp? Heavy breathing. I feel like a cat in heat, ready to provide an outlet for the sublimation of religious longing. Like Eliot, Auden knows that you can't go back. He says, and now and then a nature Turns to look where her whole system burns, and with a last defiant groan, shudders her future into stone. It's the image of Lot's wife. You can't go back. You can't look back. We are we are obliged to to make the journey onward from here. This is not one at this point is tempted by traditionalism. Traditionalism is to go back to some earlier form of the of the. Uh, uh, of the adaptation, some earlier synthesis of the human dilemma. Uh, but tr- but the tradition, the living tradition, knows that you can't go back. You must be inspired by what is back there, but you go forward. You proceed into the unknown. So he gives us the image of Lot's wife. There's no going back. Eliot's version of that in uh, The Four Quartets... Uh, was this. This is the proper approach to tradition, I think. This is Eliot's version of the proper approach. It is not to ring the bell backward, nor is it an incantation to summon the specter of a rose. That is to say, Dante's synthesis, see? We cannot revive old factions, we cannot restore old policies, or follow an antique drum. We could associate that last one, follow the antique drum with the heavy breathing. We can't do that. Auden wrote another poem, I've quoted from it earlier, uh, in which he uh, looked at uh, the, essentially looked at Eros and Mars as the two uh, options that seem most uh, available to us, certainly would have, uh, would have seemed avail- available at the time he's writing, uh, options which, uh, in which the heavy breathing can override the spiritual uh, confusion and provide what appears to be a sense of direction. Spring leads the truculent, notice, sailors into the parks and the plump little girls, but none are determined, like the tiny brains who found the great communities of summer. He's talking about the insects. In other words, uh, the spring, the eros that arises in the spring is not powerful enough uh, to override our uh, uncertainty and uh, ambiguity and make us absolutely clear about what we're to do, the way the insects are. Only on battlefields can night return to our cooling fiber. So, and he said, well, only on battlefields can we really feel that total commitment. And then the next line, which we quoted a few weeks ago, oh, not even war can frighten us enough, the last attempt to eliminate the strange by uniting us all in a terror of something known. Even that's a failure which cannot stop us taking our walks alone. Well, I bring the poem back in at this point because it is a way of going back, going back to the survival instincts of uh, sex and aggression uh, in order to override the spiritual confusion. So the first thing Auden does in part two is he says, we that we can't do that. We can't go back and resuscitate a, the, the earlier form of the tradition, uh, nor should we fall back on heavy breathing in, in any of its uh, several forms. So that means uh, we have to uh, start by taking a look at who and where we are, sort of the basics. He says how hard it is to set aside terror, concupiscence, and pride, learn who and where and how we are the children of a modest star. Uh, I'll go on with that passage here in a second, but uh, this is where this larger cosmic vision can help us uh, extricate ourselves from the sociodrama. It is the sociodrama in which we in which we get so caught up that we lose the, the 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 really awesome sense of who and where and how we are the children of a modest star. If we could keep that in mind, how we would be able to put in perspective all of those things which otherwise uh, seem loom so large for us. So we must learn, he says, to set aside terror, concupiscence and pride features of that melodrama and learn who and where and how we are the children of a modest star. So the entanglements of the sociodrama might be, uh, we might break free from them if we could look up uh, uh, to the night sky and and realize how far away the next galaxy is. We have We had some Soviet friends over on last weekend, and and apparently there's a going around Moscow now, there's this uh, this salutation. Uh, The question from somebody to somebody else would be, uh, where do you live? And the the answer is, uh, oh, you and I are neighbors. I live on a small blue planet in the Milky Way. Mm. (laughs) We are, he says, the children of a modest star, frail backward, clinging to the granite skirts of a sensible old planet, our placid and suburban nurse in Sitter's swelling universe. Sitter is a Dutch astronomer who theorized an expanding universe. And and Auden brings it in because we, we have to remember, you know, this is, we don't just live on the, you know, in the streets and in the shops and in the little pattern. We have this other home, this great home. We have to, and we have to understand who we are in terms of that. And then Auden goes on to say something, uh, I think, quite amazing. How hard to stretch imagination to live according to our station. Now, doesn't that catch you coming and going? Uh, One usually thinks uh, of imagination as this thing which, you know, hits your wagon to a star kind of a thing. Oh, now we're talking stars and expanding universe. Uh stretch our imagination and, and, and we get caught up it's a little bit of heavy breathing we get caught up in this expanding universe and then Auden in the next line brings us right down to the ground to live according to our station really we have this these two contexts this is the whole dilemma for us we live in this absolutely enormous cosmos thank goodness science has introduced us to its scope or has begun to. And we live right here with these people, these uh, family members, these neighbors, this community, and uh, we are bidden to learn to love. You see? So it's, it, it has both that groundedness and that larger scope. I keep thinking of these passages in Eliot, you know, they, they don't leave your head once they get in, and uh, I think of Eliot's version of how hard it is to stretch imagination, to live according to our station. Eliot's version in Four Quartets was that we will be content at last, he says, if our temporal reversion nourish not too far from the yew tree the life of significant soil. After all of his probings into the Great Mysteries, it comes down to a life of significant soil, groundedness. Now, the, the alternative to that for most moderns in the West has been what we have come to think of as the Faustian bargain. Not to be satisfied. not to. Uh, one looks at the cosmos and cannot bring oneself back down to where the rubber meets the road. And so we are open to uh, the, to Mephistopheles' temptation, the Faustian bargain, because we cannot be satisfied with being where we are. And Eliot had said, uh, this uh, life of significant soil must be lived not too far from the yew tree. And for Eliot, the yew tree represents death, as it did in classical mythology, and the church. Uh, but if we think of it as death in this passage, then we it, it sends us back to Auden uh, for a second. Because Auden, remember, in this part of the poem, is trying to move from the aesthetic uh, dilemma in part, two, part one of the poem to the ethical dilemma in part two of the poem. And he says in one of his prose writings, the natural threat to the aesthetic hero is the passing of time culminating in the inevitable fact of death, which brings him to the same level of nullity as everyone else. So the aesthetic hero uh, uh, has, his, uh, has his agenda somewhat shaken by the fact of pass- the passing of time and the, and the fact of death. Our mortality, the fact of our mortality, ought to, make, ought to humanize us, ought to make us more loving, more sensitive, more gentle, more understanding, more forgiving. And since it might do that, uh, the devil has to try to make it do something else. So when the fact of our mortality begins to uh, confront us and possibly humanize us, uh, the devil shows up to offer us another option, which is to flee from it into heavy breathing. to try to outflank death, uh, to eclipse it in a, in a cloud of uh, uh, the mist of the sociodrama. So Auden says, who, though, is the prince of lies, if not the spirit that denies, the shadow just behind the shoulder claiming it's wicked to grow older? Let's do something else, see? Let's go back. Remember Dante's Ulysses. Ulysses uh, uh, encouraged all his old uh, sailing friends, even though it was time for another journey. It was time for the journey into the depths instead of of simply repeating the geographical one. And when it came time for the other one, Dante's Ulysses couldn't do it. And so he went back out into the geographical journey. And for that, Dante put him in hell. Because he took all the, these others with him, this is our journey back out again and uh, I think Auden is uh, saying this that the, the devil is the voice which says that it's wicked to grow older. let's go back out and then his next line is though we are lost if we turn round thinking salvation has been found uh, see constant introduction to paradox here uh, we can't uh we We are on the journey. Uh, But it's another kind of a journey. The way Eliot put it in East Coker is this. Old men ought to be explorers. Here and there does not matter. We must be still and still moving into another intensity. Still and still moving into another intensity. Probably the way to look at this is that the call... The way Carl Jung looked at it, by the way, is that the call to the depths is uh, simultaneous with the provocation to haste or to heavy breathing, which is to say that one begins to hear that call and if you can make a distinction between the ego and the self, which is part of Jung's scheme, scheme of things, the self hears that call, uh, the deep calls to deep, the self hears that call as a call to the depths and the ego hears that call as a call to heavy breathing to the haste to the to the uh to the intrigue of the melodrama to get somehow involved in that <clears throat> and so the devil comes along to speak uh in a, this is the this old favorite of mine which is that uh, the voice of the devil is the voice of god heard by egocentricity see? Uh, saying uh, it's a wicked, to grow older. Let's go out, do it again, get back out there, camouflage your mortality in a uh, in a terribly busy existence. The, uh, how does the how does the devil or the the um, the spirit that denies the prince of lies, the great schismatic? He has many names for him. How does this figure operate, and to what ends, and what? How can we? Uh, deal with him. He's speaking, obviously, mythologically. Uh, right away, though, he wants to let us know that that uh, this that he has a uh, a role to play. Just as uh, Faust and uh, Goethe had said that Mephistopheles is part of the force that would do ever evil, but does ever good. Auden wants to remind us that's the truth. He says he's so much more effective, though, than our well-meaning, stupid friends in driving us towards good ends. Lame, fallen shadow, Retromay. Retro, but do not go away. Retromay is the Vulgate translation of the passage in the Gospels where Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. See, Retromay. Get behind me, Satan. And Auden says, But don't go away. And that's the response, the appropriate response to this to this provocation, demonic provocation, is get me, get behind me, but don't go away. Now one could just go to the gospel here for a second to see how this demonic voice uh, plays a role unwittingly uh, in things. Uh, you could say, convincingly I think, that Jesus' is steely determination to go to Jerusalem in spite of the fairly obvious consequences of doing so required Peter's suggestion that he not in order to come into existence. In other words, he could not have set his face towards Jerusalem with the determination required without a Peter there to suggest he'd not do so. I'm, and I'm playing around with this. But you see the role there that the demonic plays. It makes it possible for us to put our foot down and really recognize what it is we have to do. As Mephistopheles says to Faust on further probing about who he really is, he says, I am but part of the part that was the whole at first, part of the dark which bore itself the light. So he defines himself as a part of and he functions as a partisan. Uh, you remember the, the terms New Testament terms for the demonic are, are the diabolos, which is the one who divides and separates, and the Satan, who is the one who points the finger and accuses. So he is uh, the partisan, the one who sows melodrama in the world, and so gets us to, gets us to obscure the spiritual quandary in heavy breathing. By the way, I should say I'm not altogether against heavy breathing. Uh, 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 Carl Jung said that, uh, youth, youth must have its due and I'm not sure it can be relegated just to youth but uh, the point that Auden is speaking of here and the point that I'm making uh, carrying on from his phrase is, uh, is that we can use the heavy breathing as a, as a way of, of uh, covering over the spiritual problem. But the devil comes along as the partisan and uh, tries to get us into the, to the melodrama, but, in a, but he, uh, he uh, defeats his own purpose, and Auden makes that point. Uh, William Butler Yates said, uh, nothing can be soul or whole that has not first been rent. And so the, so the devil comes along and, and parts, the wa- parts the world, you see, and divides the world up uh, and, uh, and begins the process of defeating his own purpose. Here's how Auden puts it. For how could we get on without you? He's talking to the devil. How could we get on without you who give the savoir faire to doubt you and keep you in your proper place, which is to push us into grace? And grace is what happens when we begin to face the paradox. Now, there is no road to grace's house, as Thomas Merton said. Now, there's, grace is something that happens to us, but it happens to us at that moment when we are confronted by the paradox. And so the, the, Satan's purpose is to shatter the paradox, to turn it into a a a, 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 a partisan affair, this or that. Uh, but Auden wants us to face the ethical problem of the this or that, the either or, and to work our way through it back to the paradox. Uh, Auden says, Speaking of the devil, against his paralyzing smile and honest, realistic style. That's that's how he presents himself. Paralyzing smile, honest, realistic style. He's the realist. The devil's the realist. Our best protection, Auden says, is that we in fact live in eternity. All our intuitions mock the formal logic of the clock. to live in eternity and not get caught up in totally and exclusively in the chronological order of time. And that's exactly what Eliot had said in the Four Quartets over and over and over again. Our best protection is that, in fact, we live in eternity. Auden is uh, sufficiently in love with life so that he can't, resists having fun in his poems, even in his serious poems. And uh, it's what in part makes it such a treat to to read him. So he wants to analyze more of the devil. Uh, The accuser, he calls him by, that's what Satan means is the accuser. It's the opposite of of what uh, in John's Gospel is the paraclete. The paraclete is the counsel for the defense and uh, Satan is the counsel for the prosecution. The accuser would not be in his position did not he, unlike the big shots of the day, listen to what his victims say. Observing every man's desire to warm his bottom by the fire and state his views on education, art, women, and the situation. (laughs) He has learned what every woman knows. The wallflower can become the rose, Penelope the homely, seem the Helen of Odysseus' dream if she will look as if she were a fascinated listener. <laughs> Since men will pay large sums to whores for telling them they are not boars. <laughs> 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 so when, with overemphasis, and I want to come back to that, that is key to it, such a subtle insight here, So when with overemphasis we contradict a lie of his, the great denier won't deny, but purrs, you're cleverer than I. Of course, you're absolutely right. I never saw it in that light. As the ultimate enemy of paradox, he doesn't care which side we choose as long as we Choose it in a polemic fashion. When with overemphasis we contradict a lie of his. Now, when we contradict a lie of his with overemphasis, there's a little bit of heavy breathing in our contradiction. And that's all he's looking for. You see? We, we identify with one of the polarities, and he's happy, he identifies with one just to get the game going. And creates it and, and and amplifies it and lets shows a little of its weaknesses and pretty soon we say wait a minute no it's this and fine paradox is gone we're identified with one of the one of the poles in the otherwise paradox and a mission is accomplished half truth. we have identified with a half truth Thomas Merton <clears throat> said. In one of his writings, a writings, uh, piece of writing to other poets, he said, We must not merely be for something and against something else. Let us not give them support by becoming an opposition. Remember, in Goethe's Faust, Mephistopheles describes himself as part of that force which would ever do evil and ever does good. Auden says, As the great schismatic who first split creation into two, he did what it could never do, inspired it with the wish to be diversity in unity. As Yeats said, nothing can be soul or whole until it has first been rent. And the great schismatic does that. And Auden says, torn between conflicting needs, he's doomed to fail if he succeeds. All vague idealistic art that coddles the uneasy heart is up his alley. And his pigeon, the woozier species of religion. Even a novel, play, or song, if loud, lugubrious, and long. He loves that. Uh, the vagueness. Uh, Eliot had said, we know too much and are convinced of too little. Our literature has become a substitute for our religion and so has our religion. (laughs) The vague idealistic art and the woozier species of religion. The devil loves it. I don't know how you feel about Walt Whitman and Ezra Pound, but in any case, uh, at their expense, I'll read something that uh, Blackmore said about them. Whitman is a cracker barrel song of Solomon proceeding by seizures. (laughs) You know, the Song of Solomon is the Song of Songs. the great, erotic, and cosmic, and marvelous um, uh, psalm. Whitman is a cracker barrel song of Solomon proceeding by seizure. Then he goes on, talking about Ezra Pound and Walt Whitman. Ezra Pound and Walt Whitman are both barbarians. Neither ever found a subject that compelled him to composition. Each remained spontaneous all his life. Whitman wrote Leaves of Grass. Melville wrote Moby Dick. One is the rush. The other, the mighty effort to organize the rush. (laughs) Auden says, To win support of any kind, he, the devil, has to hold before the mind amorphous shadows it can hate yet constantly postpone the date of what he's made the grand attraction. He has to uh, provide these lofty uh, depictions of the purpose and goal and end of all of this that we're doing. But in truth, the engine of it all is this uh, group on whom we can focus our hate. The devil would say, look, this is a life-or-death universe. This is a life-or-death universe. And the tradition that knows you have to lose your life in order to find it says this is a, a dying and a rising universe. Thomas Merton says, the seed does not fear the winter." Oh, the seed does not fear the winter. And that's Auden saying our best resistance is that we in fact live in eternity. False association is a favorite strategy of his. Induce men to associate truth with a lie, then demonstrate the lie, and they will, in truth's name, treat the babe and bathwater the same. It's the great demonic trick. Get a lie and a truth to be associated. Demonstrate that the lie is a lie, and the truth will be cast out. And he gives three examples of this, beginning with early Christians. The devil led the early Christians to believe all flesh unconscious on the eve of the world's temporal interference with the old Adam of appearance. Now, there's a, I don't want to spend too much time on here, but as a he. Auden's being very insightful and playful. uh, He's talking about the uh, early Christians expecting the parousia, the second coming, momentarily, and uh, doing so in a uh, a cultural and social environment which included strong strains of Gnosticism, which rejected the uh, material order and uh, the flesh. And those uh, Gnostic strains had an influence on early Christian communities. And especially if one expected uh, a second coming uh, uh, in a uh, in a kind of a crude, literal way, uh, it seemed that the, the fleshly activities material life were um, unimportant. And there were two ways you could uh, treat as unimportant matters of matter and flesh. Well, one was to become uh, a strict aesthetic and to reject them and to hold oneself aloof from them. The other was to indulge them because it didn't matter anyway. And there were communities that uh, went either way, and some went uh, one one way for a while and the other way for a while. Uh, But in any case, it was was the kind of environment that uh, early Christians were uh, living through that almost any moment they would see the trembling consuls pray. In other words, the... The, uh, the Romans who were oppressing them would suddenly be, would drop to their knees at the moment of the second coming and, uh, and pray, knowing that as their hope grew less, and this happened in the early Christian communities, well, when is this parousia going to happen? But the devil, knowing that as their hope grew less, so would their heavenly worldliness. Now, that's the paradox, is heavenly worldliness. But if you associate the truth with a lie, and uh, the lie is that it's going to happen any moment, and that the flesh doesn't matter, uh, and it doesn't happen any moment, uh, one's hope grows less. So that their heavenly world, so would their heavenly worldliness, their early agape decline to a late lunch with Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> So going from a rejection of material, the material order, uh, the, the, they were called to live in the paradox, heavenly worldliness. Uh, but the devil got them to opt for rejecting the material order and in, in, uh, a, just in a matter of time he got them to embrace the material order in not in a paradoxical way, but in a very flat-footed way. See, Just the good old-fashioned worldly worldliness, not the heavenly worldliness. Well, that's one example of how he works. And then he gives the example of Wordsworth. Thus Wordsworth fell into temptation in France during a long vacation, saw in the fall of the Bastille the parousia of liberty, and weaving a platonic dream round a provisional regime that sloganized the rights of man, a liberal fellow traveler ran with sans culottes and jacobin, nor guessed what circles he was in. What a beautiful insight that is. Wordsworth goes to France and f- f- exudes over the French Revolution. And this, what a marvelous phrase, weaving a platonic dream round a provisional regime. In the first draft of Melville's preface to Billy Budd, he later eliminated this phrase. But in the first draft of the preface, he's talking about the French Revolution and its effect on Western uh, culture and people's estimation of what was going on. And he says in that, The opening proposition made by the spirit of that age was one hailed by the noblest men of it. Even the dry timber of Wordsworth caught fire. The the romantic spirit, or the I keep saying pseudo-romantic. I'm trying to hold a keep a place here for Dante, uh, and perhaps if we if we can include her, uh, Esau Denison, who has a sense of the romantic. So, But the pseudo-Romantic is dry timber to this, to this episode of heavy breathing uh, which uh, occurred in, in France. And then he goes on talking about Wordsworth. You see, this is, this is how the devil operates. Uh, Wordsworth ended as the devil knew an earnest Englishman would do, left by Napoleon in the lurch, supporting the established church, the Congress of Vienna and the squire's paternalistic hand. In other words, he became a reactionary. And that suits the devil just fine. We said earlier, it doesn't matter to the devil which side you're on, as long as you are blind to the paradox. But there may even be a demonic preference for the reactionary over the radical, because there is, I think, because of the sort of natural... um, a hardening of the arteries in life, <laughs> there is more of a... The, the reactionary is more likely to remain a reactionary than is the radical to remain a radical. So statistically speaking, the devil probably prefers the reactionary, but it really it doesn't matter, you see. <laughs> uh, but in this case, certainly he, uh, he produced one by associating a truth with a lie, proving the lie to be a lie and having the baby thrown out with the bath. And then uh, he talks of us. Like his, Wordsworth's, like his, our lives have been coeval with a political upheaval. Like him, we had the luck to see a rare discontinuity. Old Russia suddenly mutate into a proletarian state. And some followed the, the Wordsworth path. Some dreamed, as students always can, it realized the potential man, a higher species, brought to birth upon a sixth part of the earth. And that's what uh, happened to many of the intellectuals in the thirty. while others settled down to read the theory that forecasts the deed. That's Marxist theory. And then he talks a little bit about Marx, and he psychoanalyzes Marx, by the way. He says, the father's shadow that he hated weighed like an alp, his love frustrated, negating as it was negated. The re- then he investigates the revolutionary spirit, which is really the prophetic spirit uh, run amok, uh, or can be. He says, heroic clarity is rare. Without it, what except despair can shape the hero who will dare the desperate catabasis into the snarl of the abyss? Uh, a hero, a clear hero, the hero with heroic clarity would brave the snarl of the abyss. Uh, but that's very rare. So what we have is uh, the uh, revolutionaries who brave that abyss based on a despair and not on heroic clarity. And the abyss is, involves the desperate catabasis, a retreat, a going down, into the abyss that always lies beneath our jolly picnic on the heath of the agreeable. So the heroic journey is is into that depth below the little superficial life. The picnic on the heath of the agreeable where we bask agreed on what we will not ask, bland, sunny, and adjusted by the light of the accepted lie. So so the revolutionary spirit has not heroic clarity, but has enough desperation uh, to make the plunge into that abyss. And when he does, he has a certain effect on life on the surface. The tempting contract of the rich fled with a shriek, for as he, the revolutionary, as he spoke, the justifying magic broke. The garden of the three estates, now he's talking about the French Revolution, the three estates, the clergy, the, the nobles and the commoners, the garden of the three esca- estates turned desert and the ivory gates of pure idea to gates of horn through which the governments were born. Very flat-footed statement there, through which the governments are born. And nothing comes of it. And then we have uh, the day after the morning after, and he talks about that in a couple places. He says, Now here, now there, one leaps and cries, I've got her, and I claim my prize. I think he's talking about Lady Liberty here. This is the echo of the French Revolution. I've got her, and I claim my prize, but when the rest catch up, he stands with just a torn blouse in his hands. See? The day after. It looked like for all the world this was really going to be it. And then... Very stands um, so the the metaphor is the hangover reminds me of uh, if one has these the pseudo romantic ideas you know I, I was this hangover metaphor is appropriate because they some wag uh, some columnist, I forget who did, said it, but uh, after the uh, the slogan in the. 1984 presidential campaign uh, President Reagan's presidential campaign slogan was, it's morning in America and somebody said, I think it was after the Bush uh, inauguration uh, it's the morning after in America (laughs) and we're going to have to start paying for the party (laughs) so um, Auden has this hangover from the pseudo-romantic binge to to have something that's, that's baffling uh, the romantic is trinitarian. The pseudo-romantic is triangular. <laughs> Don't ask me to. Uh, <laughs> you know that. You know that little story about. I mean, I've said that before. There's a little story about the 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 priest who's catechizing the little kids for confirmation and asking them what the Trinity is, and he asks this little kid that ha- that has a lisp, uh, what's the Trinity, and the kid says, Father, Son Holy Spirit, and the priest says. I didn't understand that. What did you say? He said, You're not supposed to understand. It's a great mystery. (laughs) 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 Okay, so the hangover. Wake waking up from the pseudo-romantic binge. Once again we wake with swimming heads and hands that shake and stomachs that keep nothing down, here's where the devil goes to town, who knows that nothing suits his book so well as the hangover look that few drunks feel more awful than the Simon pure utopian. So the devil calls it breakfast in the role of blunt but sympathetic soul. Well, how's our socialist this morning? (laughs) I could say, let this be a warning, but no. devil's still speaking, but no. Why should I? Students must sow their wild oats at times or bust. Such things have happened in the lives of all the best conservatives. I'll fix you something for your liver. And thus he sells us down the river. Now, you see, the, Im- the implication of that is, and-, and we get it all the time with a wink and a nod, and the implication is f- f- a very condescending, avuncular uh, notion that, well, yes, you see, that zeal for justice and peace and freedom and equality really is a youthful indiscretion isn't it and so now that you know that why don't you just settle down to business and there you have it Uh, Auden says he sells us down the river repenting of our last infraction we seek atonement in reaction and cry nostalgic like a whore I was a virgin still at four now <clears throat> I said maybe the devil has a preference for the, uh, for the reactionary over the radical, not that it really matters, but that one may be more uh, permanent than the other. Blackmore, when I thought of this essay, this thing he said about Whitman, I looked it up and then this, this came to my eye. He says, The true anarchy of spirit should always show a Tory flavor. It is the artist above all who realizes that revolutions, however fresh, violent, and destructive, however aspiring or groping or contagious, have always already taken place. The Tory flavor is the... Is, uh, in other words, the Tory reality is just as sacrificial as the revolutionary reality. But its sacrificial system has been, uh, has been so over... It's, it's, it's covered with ivy. It's been so uh, made customary and familiar and has, ha- and has, been, uh, has had all of the institutions uh, in place and, uh, and, and held in an esteem so that the sacrificial nature of the Tory culture uh, doesn't offend, whereas the sacrificial nature of a, of a revolutionary movement does. So uh, Blackmore says, the true anarchy of spirit should always show a Tory flavor. Just before Mephistopheles shows up in Goethe's Faust, and this indicates that, in a sense, Mephistopheles looks down and says, well, he, uh, he's ready for me. Faust is talking with his, his assistant, Wagner, and he says, you are by just a single urge possessed. Oh, may you never know the other. Two souls, alas, are dwelling in my breast, and either would be severed from its brother the one holds fast with joyous earthly lust unto the world of man with organs clinging. The other soars impassioned from the dust to realms of lofty forbearers winging. And Mephistopheles looks down and says, Mm-mm, he's ready for me. Auden says this, Oh, how the devil who controls the moral asymmetric souls, the either-or's, the mongrel halves, who find truth in a mirror, laughs. The sentence is how the devil laughs. And he laughs because of the moral asymmetric souls, the either-or as the mongrel halves. This is the, this is the failure of the ethical. Part one of the poem was the failure of the aesthetic, and this is the failure of the ethical. It needs to have the religious dimension, and the devil tries to get us stuck in it. Auden, in his notes to this poem, says this, he uses the word romanticism, but as I say, because I'm trying to leave a space open for Dante and a few others, I'm going to to substitute the word pseudo-romanticism. He says, the cause of romanticism is either laziness or impatience. The lazy romantic is too woolly-minded to recognize a paradox when he meets one. Like the student who, when asked in an ethics class to give his views on punishment, replied he was in favor of light capital punishment. (laughs) (laughs) Uh The next one's even funnier. The impatient romantic sees more clearly, but sees only one side of the paradox, the other he ignores or denies. Professor A.E. Hausman's comment upon a certain textual editor is the classic description of this type. Quote, He is like a donkey. You know that classic uh, image of the donkey between two piles of hay, right? Paralyzed, not knowing which way to turn. The impatient romantic, Auden says, quoting Aus- uh, Hausman is like a donkey between two bundles of hay who fondly imagines that if one bundle of hay be removed, he will cease to be a donkey. <laughs> That's the impatient romantic. <laughs> but what do we do? You see, two souls in our breath, we feel pulls in both directions. It goes back to what Buber had talked about, the two walls and so on. Auden in a piece of prose writing says, we are all consciously or unconsciously seeking some form of Catholic unity, small c, to correct the moral, artistic, and political chaos that has resulted from an overdevelopment of Protestant diversity. Uh, Auden, by the way, is a, is, a, uh, is a Protestant in his religious temperament, so he's not, we're not talking denominational Consciously or unconsciously seeking some form of Catholic unity uh, to uh, <clears throat> overcome this, this uh, divided world. Uh, Blake is one of the three judges of this poem. So uh, Auden has Blake uh, as his example. Here's what Blake says in one of his poems. With trees and fields full of fairy elves and little devils who fight for themselves, remembering the verses that Haley sung when my heart's knocked against the root of my tongue. What a line. <clears throat> Verses Haley sung, when my heart knocked against the root of my tongue. That's the birth of the poet right there. What to others a trifle appears fills me full of smiles or tears for double the vision my eyes do see a and double vision is always with me. May God us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep. So Auden says we're looking for Catholic unity, but it is not single vision. Auden says the devil ought to push us into grace. Here's what Martin Buber says. Man's religious situation, his being there in the presence, is characterized by, it, by its essential and indissoluble antinomy. He who accepts the thesis and rejects the, the antithesis does injury to the significance of the situation. He tries to think out a synthesis, destroys the significance of the situation. He who strives to make the antinomy into a relative matter abolishes the significance of the situation. He who wishes to carry through the conflict of the antinomy other than with his life transgresses the significance of the situation. The significance of the situation, in case you wanted to know, is that it is lived and nothing but lived continually, ever anew, without foresight, without forethought, without prescription, in the totality of its antinomy. Auden then concludes, he cannot always fool us thrice, for he may never tell us lies. Just half-truths we can synthesize. So, hidden in his hocus-pocus, there lies the gift of double focus. That magic lamp which looks so dull and utterly impractical, yet, if Aladdin use it right, can be a sesame to light. And here's who I think Aladdin is in Auden's terms. Auden says, The devil indeed is the father of poetry, for poetry might be defined as the clear expression of mixed feelings. And that, again, I think, is the vestibule into the paradox.